This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 16th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Last week, we at the Cato Institute were saddened to learn of the passing of our colleague, the journalist Nat Hentoff. I spoke with Scott Bullock, president of the Institute for Justice, about Hentoff's powerful legacy and his twin loves of jazz and the Constitution. You knew Nat Hentoff uh, in a way that a lot of us here at Cato know Nat Hentoff, which is mostly by phone. And uh, I would occasionally have phone calls with him, uh, and we would talk about music. We would talk about the things that he was writing. We would uh, talk about uh, all sorts of things. And he always had some incredible story to go along with almost anything you could possibly mention in particular, he uh, I remember I had a conversation. I said, yeah, I like jazz a lot, but I'm more of a I'm more of a bluegrass guy. I, I play the banjo a little bit. And he goes, well, let me tell you, in the 1950s, I went on tour with Flat and Scruggs. And I was just <laughs> I was absolutely in heaven hearing this this story about this, uh, you know, uh, little fuzzy headed guy uh, with a pipe traveling with through throughout the south with with flattened scrugs but that was like that was fairly typical he was well acquainted with all manner of musical figures and wrote extensively about them yeah it was it was amazing uh, the the amount of people that he knew the experiences that he had in the music world even leaving aside all the great writings he did about the Constitution. Uh, and it was primarily jazz, but you're right. I mean, he he uh, was one of the early writers about Bob Dylan. and He wrote uh, the liner notes to the freewheeling Bob Dylan. That's right. And and had um, a sense of experience in country music as well, well wonderful profiles of Merle Haggard. Uh, but his experience with the jazz musicians is really legendary as well. I mean, he truly knew all of the great jazz musicians, and not just knew them in the sense that he interviewed them, but really got to know them as people. And one of the great things he did in his writings about jazz, too, is really portrayed them as essentially heroic individuals, too. I mean, one of my favorite books about jazz uh, is the book that he wrote called Jazz Is. And it was just this wonderful collection of uh, essays that portrayed um, jazz musicians, I said, almost in this Homeric type of light to talk about what they were able to accomplish, the struggles that they had, what they've overcome. And it's really a special book. And it's still, I think, one of the best introductory books to jazz that there is. I remember you and I went to a, a club, HR 57, which is a jazz club uh, that uh, is in DC. And in between sets by the live musician, they would play these old television programs of jazz musicians. And we turn and we look at it, and they have a live audience there. And there's Nat Hentoff <laughs> with his with his pipe, and this is black and white, uh, presumably produced in the late '50s, snapping his fingers there and he just is. bopping Look, along, looking his hip as, as as you can imagine. And he and got a lot of that on screens. the air. He got a lot of it on the air. He was the producer uh, of it, and uh, one of his proudest accomplishments, uh, and this is noted in a lot of the obituaries about him, was this uh, uh, show that he did called "The Sound of Jazz," where uh, he produced it. And it was this really legendary performance of 
Billie Holiday uh, when she was kind of later on in life and certainly in decline, but still had some real power behind her singing. And uh, she was there with her great partner from years ago, Lester Young, too, was, which was, even though he was relatively young, was still in the twilight of, uh, uh, of his years. And uh, they had a moment there where they were uh, playing together. She was singing, then he came in on tenor. And it's just this magical moment that uh, Nat always said was one of his proudest uh, accomplishments. And it's only right, too, and it made me really smile when I read that, uh, that he died listening listening uh, to the woman that that uh, that he always loved, uh, Billie Holiday. Yeah. So uh, Cato did not become affiliated with him uh, until, I believe, 2008. And uh, not to jump over the rest of his career, but he had spent decades uh, as one of the foremost, and in my experience, talking with him for videos that we produce for the Cato Institute, one of the most consistent advocates of a very broad understanding of the First Amendment. Yes, that's right. He was in many ways a First Amendment absolutist, and he was somebody who took the Constitution, in particular the First Amendment, and also civil liberties in general, very seriously, and and applied it consistently as well, and was willing to speak out uh, against uh, violations of civil liberties, no matter which party it was, and didn't have any of this sort of team spirit that you see <laughs> so much predominant in, in this town. So he was incredibly critical of George Bush's um, violations of the Constitution, and he was equally, equally vociferous in his condemnations of Barack Obama's violations of the Constitution. That's probably one of the reasons why he was so appealing to Cato and agreed to set up shop here in his, in his later years. Now, I'm looking at uh, his commentary section. A lot of these columns in uh, the, his later years he wrote with his son, uh, Nick, uh, and just a few of these headlines here, Obama's epic failure to curb gun violence, free speech, and loathing on the campaign trail, how Obama abandoned the American ethos of justice. Uh, Comey's Clinton probe is deja vu all over again. The elusive Trump pivot on torture. ACLU fights Dems' dishonest war on due process. This is somebody who, you know, I, I guess could have been construed in his early years as a liberal in the 60s sense, but not so much anymore. No, was a true civil libertarian. I mean, his passions really were constitutional rights like the Fourth Amendment and and especially the First Amendment. Those were probably the two amendments that he knew the most about, were most passionate about, and consistently adhered to uh, a, a very, I think, proper but also very robust understanding of the protections afforded Americans by those by those two essential amendments. Uh, when I went to New York to uh, sit with Nat and chat with him in his apartment uh, in 2011, we talked about uh, free speech. We talked about anonymous speech. And I asked him, uh, without much context, I said, well, what is, the, what is the value of anonymous speech in uh, America? And he jumped immediately to the Clarence Thomas concurrence in the Citizens United case. And I just thought to myself, wow, what a, what a deep pull to jump in there because, of course, that particular concurrence talks a lot about uh, that idea of disclosure and whether or not organizations should be compelled to 
to uh, uh, make public certain activities that they're engaged in, and to be that well read, in, you know, in a way that uh, on on these kinds of issues was impressive. And he was at the time, I believe, eighty six or eighty seven years old. Yeah, he seemed to stay on top of it uh, throughout his life. And by the way, that was a killer Nat Hentoff impression that uh, <laughs> that you gave a little while ago. From my talkings to him on the uh, on the phone, uh, it, it sounded exactly like him. But yeah, he would go to something like that, and then also recognize too uh, the very uh, real harms that could happen to folks when the government. Ex- exposes people um, who who would like to remain anonymous in what they're saying about the government or in or in topics of uh, or in topics of the day you know one of the things that I in reading about uh, him too and I remember one of the things that that he had said too that was really interesting in interviewing folks uh, as well and this is something you might want to Keep in mind, Caleb, in all your interviews as well, is one of the reasons why he liked to talk to people on the phone is because he felt like people were more open, uh, especially entertainers or people that, you know, that always felt like they had to be on. They were giving a performance if they were in person person with somebody. But if they were on the phone, you could uh, get them in these more unguarded moments. And he did that. I think it's one of the reasons why he got so many of these great quotes from people uh, from all the years. Not only was his because they trusted him, but also because he was able to uh, talk to them directly and maybe get them to say uh, something in a moment when when they weren't on. Of course, uh, Nat Hentoff wrote for the Village Voice for 50 plus years. And uh, when he was let go, uh, you know, he his opinions uh, over the years sort of evolved in a way that um, I want to say he didn't really concern himself with traditional allies that he might be offending by ha- holding a heterodox opinion. And that, that seemed to be a pretty consistent trait that he had. I think that's right. And, and, and he really seemed to almost delight in the fact that he felt like he was being, he was being consistent. And he really did that in, with regards to free speech, too, where, it, where he felt like former allies that should be on the proper side of, of on the right side of free speech, when they would fall away, he would really excoriate them because he felt like you guys should know better. So, you know, when various people who were more traditional civil libertarians started making exceptions for things like campus speech codes and saying, well, you know, we have to protect the sensitivities of certain people and that sort of thing. He was incredibly upset about that. And it was part of the book that he wrote, Free Speech for Me, but not for thee. And, uh, and so, you know, he, and he did not mind having certain heterodox opinions, too. Uh, one of the things where he was um, uh, very outspoken about that got him a lot of grief on the left was he was very pro-life. Uh, but he saw this as, as sort of being consistent in a, in a humanist sort of way. So he was uh, pro anti-abortion or, or, or pro-life, as he called it, but he was also very opposed to the death penalty as well. And so he would like to uh, also Kind of, uh, uh, poke at conservatives, too, for saying, listen, you know, you say you're pro-life, but why are you so willing to condemn people to death uh, for this? You ought to have a consistent pro-life 
position. So you know, and he loved to take take that and uh, and run with it, even if it offended people on either side of the political spectrum. Uh, I'm quoting here from the uh, NYU Journalism Institute, the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. In March 2012, the faculty at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University, together with an honorary committee of alumni, selected the 100 outstanding journalists in the United States in the last 100 years. And Nat Hentoff, of course, uh, made that list as well for his uh, work in such a wide variety of, of areas. Very well deserved. So uh, th there was a film that was produced just a couple of years ago. Uh, I, it's unfortunate that a lot of the obits uh, leave out his uh, Cato Institute affiliation, which, of course, we here are very proud to to talk about uh, having Nat Hentoff as, as a colleague. The pleasures of being out of step that goes into a lot of... Uh, his associations with a lot of jazz musicians and his uh, advocacy in a lot of uh, public policy areas. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a very fitting uh, description of, of 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 who he was and 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 what he represented for so many people. And I think one of the things that that people always he always commanded was respect. I think he got that from musicians who were not always the easiest people to, to deal with, but they knew uh, that he got this music uh, and um, and he was, you know, really, really their champion while still, you know, also knowing that he was going to give a, a, a fair and critical treatment of, of what they thought. And then obviously he was going to take on uh, anybody that he felt was not consistently applying the Constitution. Uh, some people might be wondering, why are you talking to the president of the Institute for Justice <laughs> about uh, Nat Hentoff? And uh, you quote Nat Hent you're a great fan of jazz. And you uh, have this quote for, from, uh, from Nat. Well, he said one time something I could always relate to. He said, the Constitution and jazz are my main reasons for being. And I always related to that quote. Uh, the Constitution and jazz are certainly very uh, strong twin passions of mine as well. So in addition to admiring Nat's writings and his views on the Constitution, uh, I, I also kind of shared um, his approach to life too, and and really, you know, being surrounded by your family and going out listening to Billie Holiday, that's not a bad way to go. Scott Bullock is president of the Institute for Justice. You can read more of the recent work of Nat Hentoff at our website, Cato.org. <laughs>